We'll be in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 16, if you'll turn there. And let's pray. Father, you are so awesome. You are so mighty in your ways, so wise, powerful. We see your glory in the things you've made and in your word, which is true. And you have such wisdom for us. You have such uh, understanding for us to enter into by your grace. And I pray that we would today be filled with your spirit, have understanding of your word, and that you would apply it to our lives. We want to be your faithful servants. We want to be uh, to follow the example that Paul sets here of trusting in you, of looking to you, and of being focused on doing your will. Thank you, Lord, for uh, the life you've given us, for the families, the friends, and this fellowship. We just owe all to you, and we praise your name in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I've never seen this rule written down, but it's kind of an unwritten rule of polite social interaction is to avoid the spirited dis debate of religion or politics. Have you guys heard that before? Um, and if you persist in argument, in a, especially about controversial subjects, it tends to make people feel uncomfortable and defensive. And uh, it may be considered by some bad form to discuss or to share about our relationship with Jesus. But he is our life. And he's to impact every aspect of life. All of our, the way that we work, the reason why we serve, all of that is because of Jesus and what he's done in our lives. And people might say, well, keep your opinions to yourself. But following Jesus isn't an opinion. It's like someone saying, you know, keep the fact of your marriage to Laura quiet. I'm tired of hearing about that, that you're married and that you love her and that she loves you. That's, that's pretty bizarre and ridiculous. But we have a relationship with Jesus that's real. And he, he has saved us. He is our king. We've been born again through the Spirit. And having been born again by him, our actions reflect his own. He begins to live through us. And we begin to bear resemblance to him at all times in the workplace, in the home. Some people approach their Christian walk kind of like an employee that clocks in and clocks out. So if they go to church, they clock in. Like, okay, I'm on the clock. I'm going to do Christian stuff. I'm going to talk about Christian things. And I am going to hang around Christians and tolerate them. And then uh, when that's over, I kind of clock out and I go back into regular life. Where Jesus is not really a big part of what I do or how I think or the decisions that I make. And... Do you guys work in jobs where you're required to take your work home with you? That's usually seen as a bad thing. At least I, when I was an hourly employee and I would talk to people who were salaried employees, I'm like, I love the fact that I can leave my work at work. I don't have to take my work home with me. But as in Christ, we are to take our work home with us because we are with Christ and he's in us all the time. So we don't clock in and clock out. We continue to talk about Jesus. We continue to think about what he has said in the word. We're always on the clock, just like my parents are always my parents, even if we don't live in the same country or in the same house. And I am still married to Laura, whether we're within earshot of each other. We are children of God, and we are on the clock, always, in serving him. And it's not a burdensome labor to do this, 
because it's he who is enabling us and even putting in, in us the desire to please him and to do things that glorify him. As a new parent, you have a responsibility with a child. A child has been brought into the world and they're now dependent on you. And we are children of God. And we have responsibilities as children of God in relating to him, in serving him. He holds us responsible, doesn't he? To do the roles as he's called us, to be obedient. And I love that God asks us to do things, but he also equips and enables us to do them. The things that he asks us are impossible for the flesh to do, but through him we can do all things, through Christ who strengthens us. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 16, is where we'll pick it up. A little overlap from last week, but too good to breeze past. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. When we open the word of God, we open it not as a textbook, but a personal letter addressed to us from God, a revelation of God and his wisdom that we need for life today. Not just teaching us how to get to heaven and how, what heaven will be like, though it does speak about those things, but we should come to the word like hungry beggars who are thirsty, who are desperate to receive something to be sustained. That's how we come, should come to it. But we can become familiar with the word and we can come to it like a master to, to kind of analyze rather than listening to what Jesus is saying. And we can, as we have knowledge and as those notes in your margins of the Bible begin to build, we can limit the meaning or the implications of a verse to something we've already heard before. And we just fall back into what we think it means rather than listening to what Jesus is saying today. What is God trying to say to me that I have missed previously or that I didn't really understand? I thought I knew, but I, I clearly missed it. The Bible doesn't change but we are to change, and we're to keep changing. And it's God who changes us when we yield to him. Being in the word, reading it, studying it, doesn't mean that the word of God is dwelling richly in us. This only occurs when we humble ourselves to receive it and obey it. The way that you can know the word of God is dwelling rich in your life is when it's expressed through your life. When your, your actions are guided and governed by the word of God and the love of Jesus. And it talks here about uh, singing praise with grace in your hearts. That all we do is in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Just because we've heard a passage, we've written down some notes or we can re recall something from it, it doesn't mean that my heart is actually open to God and his truth. And those can be confused in us. How many things in your life do you do because you have to do it? I would say probably a lot. There's probably a lot of things that we do that we would not do unless we had to do them. 
it's great thing when there's a correlation between having to do something and desiring to do that thing, actually wanting to do it, right? It's great when those two things can correlate. You need to work, but it's great when you actually want to work. You want to go. You're excited to go. As believers, we're called to not forsake fellowship, and it's such a blessing when we desire fellowship and we seek to find Christians to walk and be in, in happy fellowship with. When, whenever there's a desire in you to do the will of God, it's because God put that in your heart to do. And it's a blessing when we see that, that God has been working in our lives in any degree. If you turn to Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul reminds the believers there that they're always on the clock. Not just when he's around that they should give him a good show of, of good works, but that they should be consistent. Philippians 2, verse 12. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. The Pharisees found great pride in doing the things that God commanded, right? They had the law, they had the traditions of men, and they were really happy to do them. And it was a source of pride for them that they would be doing the things God said. Instead of pride, it should be humility in us that, we, that God works in us both to will and to do the things that please him. Not to fulfill a law, but because he loves us and in light of his acceptance, we desire to do the things that please him because we have a relationship with him. And he says, guys, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. They didn't work for their salvation, but having been saved by God's grace, they were called to be gracious to others. God had forgiven them, so they were to forgive others. This is how uh, the gospel is worked out in our lives. We have been saved, so we should seek to bring the message of salvation to others. Jesus put the needs of others above his own. And so we ought to put other people's needs above our own. This is how this is worked out. Something you receive, but it's something to be lived Are you thankful to see the work of God in your life? Not just to change your circumstances, but to change you and to make you that faithful servant of God that we want to be, but we know in ourselves we cannot accomplish. Our flesh does things to build our confidence and to impress others, but what we are to do is with, we're to do things with God in mind to please him in obedience to him. So it's not about other people at all. It's not like, well, I'm a parent. I have to be a good example to my kids, so I'm not going to shout right now. I'm not going to curse. I really want to, but I'm not going to because they're in the room. Well, it shouldn't be about that. It should be about my love of Christ and following his example, and, and then in light of that, I'm to be a good example. Colossians 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. In our study of Ephesians, we went through this passage a bit. 
how wives are called to submit to their own husbands, how husbands are to love their wives. And in a marriage relationship, God distills the role, the, the responsibilities of the role to one point. And that's pretty, we'd say, oh, well, that's easy, right? Just one thing to do, one thing to be mindful of. But if you're married or even unmarried, you know that it is not possible for us to just say, I'm going to be loving all the time. This is one thing that God holds us who are married accountable to. This one thing. Now, there's a lot of other things. We have the whole Bible, but this is the one thing that it's distilled down to for us. In, in the context of the Ephesians passage, that everyone, married or not, is to be marked by this humbling of self, as it says in Ephesians 5, 20 and 21, that giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God, that we're to take the lowest place, we are to be the servant of all, just like Jesus modeled when he washed the disciples' feet. God's the one who's ordained the marriage covenant between one man and one woman. And when we enter into this covenant, he tells us what he expects of us, how he wants us to uh, fulfill that role. And for wives, it's to submit to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So the husband's not the boss kind of like the captain of the sports team, where you're all teammates together and you're all working for one goal, to win. The wife is not to be under her husband as if her husband is God, but as unto the Lord, as, as we are to be obedient to Christ, so a wife, or to be under the authority of Christ as the husband, so the wife is under the, uh, the headship of the husband. Her faith in God is displayed by not undermining or usurping that authority. And her husband may or may not be a Christian, but she, like in military, where you recognize rank, that God has established this order, and whether you agree with, with the decisions of the captain, let's say, in a military situation, you're still to respect that role or position. Believers are called to observe and obey the laws of the land as long as they don't compromise our faith. And the same is true in a marriage, that a husband, if he uh, commands or directs his wife to sin, that should be not submitted to, right? Because we serve Christ. Communication is critical in a healthy marriage. Submission does not mean suffering in silence. Wives, I encourage you, speak to your husbands. Speak to God. Think about all the times in Scripture that God graciously yielded to the prayers of people, where they prayed, and God was going to do one thing, but he decided to do something else, or he delayed, or he, he saved when there was going to be destruction. And in the same way, we can pray to God, and he will hear. God is better than a husband to you, ladies who are married, He's the one who's joined you to, as one flesh with this husband who is flawed, who makes mistakes. He will answer to God for how he performs his role, and so will you. We all will stand before the Lord. And then he says, husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. And Jesus didn't just talk love. He loved by laying down his life as a sacrifice for sinners with no guarantee of return. He did not love people to be loved by them because he hoped to get something in return. He gave love freely 
without reservation or without thought of self. This, is, this love is more than fondness or affection or even just providing for needs. It's more than a feeling of love or a family love, romantic love. I like what Guzik said in his commentary about this agape love. He says, strictly speaking, agape cannot be defined as God's love because men are said to agape sin and the world. But it can be defined as a sacrificial, giving, absorbing love. The word has little to do with emotion. It has much to do with self-denial for the sake of another. Agape love never says, what about me? It's always thinking of the other. It's always putting their needs above self. It seeks to joyfully bless others even when it costs everything. We see that in Jesus. I'm to love my wife not because she loves me, but because Jesus loves me. It's not because she's earned it, so now I'll show her love. I'm to love her regardless of whether I think she's doing her role well or not. Husbands also have this uh, warning about bitterness. Prohibited from being bitter towards their wives. Now, where does bitterness come from? Well, we're naturally selfish. I feel like I, I'm kind of an authority on this, being a man, being married, and, and being selfish. When you feel like you're being taken advantage of, you can get a bit bitter. When you have unresolved disagreements that you internalize and you don't give to the Lord, bitterness comes. Symptoms of bitterness. Sharp words, sarcasm. You don't care if you're hurting someone else. That's how we lash out when we're bitter, when we harbor resentment. A husband might feel like his wife isn't pulling her weight. In the classic example, you come home and the house is in disarray. And, and he says, I worked all day and I come home to a house in disarray. But no amount of disarray in a house with washing or dirty dishes can compare to the bitterness of sin that's in your heart. Far worse. When we're embittered towards our wives, we cannot love them as we should. The grace, the mercy, and compassion of God, they're crowded out by our own selfishness. And so that's something we are to repent of and to be wary of, that we have a tendency, men, husbands, to become bitter. And if you're like me, you're not always in touch with your feelings, and you don't even know that you're being bitter. The flavor is there, and it's covered over by a lot of other things. But may the Lord show us where it's like, and if someone says, you're bitter, what's your first, like, no, I'm not, like denial, right? I'm not being bitter. Naturally, yes, we are extremely bitter. But the Lord, his sweetness will come through when we yield and submit to him. So husbands, we need to be submitting to Christ, and then we can love our wives as we were called to. Why don't we turn to 1 Peter 3, verse 7. One Peter three verse seven. The world has this character caricature of submission that's just it's grotesque and not scriptural. That it's the domineering, the, the right to domineer and to command and to force to obey. And that's not at all how we see Christ operating. 
1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. I've heard this passage uh, misspoken many times. Notice the passage does not say the wife is the weaker vessel. It says husbands ought to treat their wives as the weaker vessel. That just like you, if you have something that's of value and it's breakable, you'll put it in a safe place. You'll handle it gently and with care. It's like if you have some ancient pottery that's priceless, you know you're not supposed to throw it around like a, like a football. You would put it under lock and key. You would keep it in a safe place because it has value. And we ought to hold our wives in greater value than any possession that we have. We say, oh, kids, that's not to be played with because that could break. And if we wouldn't strike that vase with a hammer, well, we ought to be very careful about the way we use words, that we're not hitting out and lashing out with words that could do damage. We ought to assign great value to our wives because they are heirs together of the grace of life. We stand on equal footing before our Savior. If we are embittered, if we are not kind, our prayers can be hindered. So let's value, let's show that we value people, especially our wives. Back to Colossians chapter 3, verse 20. Children. He's, just, he's not leaving anything, any stone unturned here. He's just going right through the family. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. The more I think about it, I am increasingly amazed that God would come to earth as a man, that Jesus would submit to the father and also to a stepdad, Joseph. And, and he would humble himself under an earthly man. And we see in, in the very nature of God, this model of sum, submission and humility, where you have God the Father and Jesus the Son. How Jesus is fully God. He is, in him is the completeness, I mean, in him we're complete, but in him is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus is totally God, and yet he honored and exalted the Father was obedient to the Father. So he came as a child, and he modeled what it's, what it's like to be a child. So kids can even see how they should live. Jesus often prayed with the Father, kids, it's good for you to speak to your parents. It's good for you to communicate the things that you're feeling, things that you're struggling with, Recognizing the authority and the responsibility that God's given your parents to raise you as godly children. It's your obedience, not the quality of their parenting, to which God will hold you as a kid responsible. He says, one thing, kids, obey your parents. And as long as you're under their care and you are living in their home, you are to have that heart, to be obedient to them. And I'll tell you, it's not easy to obey when you have a will of your own, right? It's not easy. 
But God's not asking us easy things to do. He's asking us to do what's right. It's right for you as a child to obey your parents, even as it's right for a husband to love his wife. If you say you trust God, kids, young people, then obey your parents even when you don't agree with their rules or restrictions. I expect that the vast majority of time that you push back against something that you're told to do, it's not because that they are asking you to sin, but because you want your own way. You can just be real frank about that. You just want to do what you want to do. That's the problem. It's not that, like, oh, I think this is an unrighteous command that I should be doing the dishes right now. (laughs) It has nothing to do with sin. It's just like, I would rather be doing this. Again, selfishness. It's in all of us. May God root it out. And you also are to obey your parents as unto the Lord. They are not God to you. You have Jesus. You have the Father. You follow them. And in, you express your faith in God through your obedience. Fathers here, they're singled out. It's applicable to both parents, the word in the Greek, that parents should not provoke their children. And this word provoke means to stir up. It's kind of like to push buttons. And and parents can provoke their children in a lot of ways by unreasonable demands or deceiving and lying to their kids, comparing the kids with one another, um, humiliating them over private issues, playing favorites, showing preference to one child over another withholding discipline when it's appropriate. All these things can provoke a child, and and it can discourage them. It's to be disheartened, deprived of courage or confidence, dejected. We aren't supposed to, as parents, be trying to build self-confidence in our kids by telling them how great they are, how they can be or do anything, but to encourage them to follow Christ, to be the person God's created them to be, who is valued and loved by him who has great plans for their lives, and providing opportunities to work and to play together, to encourage them, being present in their lives, taking a personal interest in each one, not putting what we think they should do upon them as a burden, but getting to know what's interesting to them and what they would want to do. Admit your mistakes when you cross the line. Set a good example of controlled communication when there's a disagreement without bringing up the past. Those are ways that we can love our kids. Again, their obedience is really, as it is between us and them, but it's between them and the Lord. And as parents, we are called to discipline when appropriate and in appropriate ways. Colossians 3, verse 22. Bond servants, obey all things your master. In all things, your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. In the Roman Empire, there were millions of slaves. It's believed by some to be 20 to even 40% of the population in areas were slaves. Millions of slaves. They'd had a lot of jobs, craftsmen, chefs, laborers, accountants, 
tutors, doctors, personal attendants, even gladiators. They had a, a lot of jobs that they did. Some were privately owned, some were government-owned slaves. They were foreigners or had been uh, captured in battles. To be a slave meant you had no legal rights, you had no authority, you could not vote, you could not own property. At any time a slave could be sold or hired out, their children could be sold or hired out for anything. They're having a party and they want uh, someone to go along and they, your kids could be sold to someone else's house permanently. There's nothing you could do about it. Um, the lives of slaves varied depending on their master or their job. Some were seen as disposable labor. Some were beaten and whipped and branded and killed even without recourse. They had no rights. It's really impossible for us in our Western mindset to appreciate the pains, degradation, and the hopelessness that slaves face. Because when you were a slave, that's who you were. And your kids were going to be slaves. And it was very difficult to, to earn your way out of that. So it's really remarkable that Paul addresses slaves, that he even talks to them, and that they're on the radar. He speaks to them before the masters. He says, slaves, though you've been stripped of legal rights, though you're not valued or loved by men, you are loved by God. You have equal standing before God with all his children. And he says, obey your masters in all things in sincerity of heart, fearing God. So their motivation to serve their masters was not to move up in society, to do better than their other slaves, to earn their freedom. That wasn't to be their motive anymore. It was in sincerity of heart, in the fear of God. They were to obey in everything. And as a slave, man... When you've, when you've had freedom and it's been taken away, or all you've known is that, it's not in our nature to submit to that concept, right? To be obedient in all things, even when your master is domineering and cruel and sold your son. It's hard to imagine. And he says, don't, don't obey with eye service, meaning that you have to be babysat. If, if they're looking at you, you're on task, but as soon as you leave, you're undermining them and you're not doing a good job. You know, that, that testimony would be seen by other slaves, that this guy is working hard, you know, try hard over there, trying to impress. It's like, it has nothing to do with the master. It's about Jesus Christ, about what he's done for me. And it's in sincerity of heart and the fear of God, not because they were afraid to be punished, It was the fear of God that was to motivate them to do their best every day. This word sincerity, we use it to mean being genuine or without hypocrisy. In the word, the Greek word, it conveys a sincerity without self-seeking, generosity, bountifulness, liberality. So he's saying, with a generous heart, do everything that's demanded of you, servants. Isn't it wild that people who had had everything stripped away from them, God was saying, be generous without self-seeking and obedient to your masters. And this miraculous work could only be accomplished by the Holy Spirit in a life who's changed you and empowering you to do just that. 
At times we might feel like slaves because of the daily grind, because of the demands placed upon us. But the command that God gives slaves here, they are applicable in any role where we find ourselves under authority. In the workplace, in a family. And if a slave was to do what was required in sincerity of heart and the fear of God to their masters, that generosity and that bounty should mark us as well because we too have the same spirit. Slaves were forced to be slaves. They didn't, I mean, some people, they had debts, and that was a way that they could pay off those debts. But most slaves, it was not their choice. They wanted to be free of slavery. Jesus willingly became a slave to all. He didn't have to, but he wanted to. He, he did that for our sakes. We follow Jesus' example not just by what we do, but why we do it. Obedience to God. Paul writes, Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. And this is an important point. We don't obey and serve God selfishly for the hope of reward or increased reward, because From the Lord, we know we shall receive the reward of the inheritance here. You know that God already has a full reward set aside for you right now? I had this concept as a kid that, you know, I had my entry ticket to heaven through Jesus Christ, and now I was just stockpiling reward by doing good stuff. So the more good stuff I did, the more riches and wealth I had waiting for me in heaven. And it was a very childish and, and really selfish motive. And, and I would think to myself, there's another gem in my crown type idea. But we already have a full reward. And we have, it's not just the reward of gold and crowns and getting to live in a street, with streets of gold. And it's cool and everything. But our inheritance is Christ, God, fellowship with God, and he's dwelling within us. And we have that down payment even now of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 2 John 1.8, it says that we already have a full reward and we don't want to lose the things that we've we've already been given. And that's really the perspective change, is that we're not trying to earn rewards by pleasing God. We have already a full reward and we are going to receive it, guaranteed because of God's goodness. But let's not lose that by being disobedient to him. When we're fulfilling our work or obligations in the family as a child or parent or spouse, we do so in Christ as unto him, not for an attaboy or a pat on the back or recognition. And if we find that we feel a bit overlooked for the promotions and, and that we are being taken advantage of, no, that's a symptom that it's not being done completely as to the Lord. Because then we can be content knowing that we receive from him the inheritance. That it's, we're not doing it for those things, and so we're not disgruntled or feeling cheated. We have already received the fullness of the Spirit, and one day we're going to be glorified together with Christ. That is awesome that we have that awaiting us. Being one with Christ. 
Let's continue to the, the first four verses of Colossians chapter 4. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. The word master in verse 1 is the two times it's there. It's the same word. It means Lord, ruler. And it's used in, to denote God as well. So whoever is the master, know you have a master, capital M, God. So be fair and honest with your people, your workers. The God who commanded slaves and servants to obey their masters, he rules over the masters. And they are to be obedient to him in the things that they give and how they treat their people. Slaves did not have legal authority to make a claim on their masters, and it was not the fear of being sued or undermined which was to motivate a master to treat his people well. Now, what constitutes fairness and equity in the ancient Roman culture, it's quite different than in our egalitarian society today of what we would expect of a workplace and rights of workers. It's hard for us to kind of be divorced from how we think things should be and how things were. But what's always fair back then and now is that we ought to be fair and equitable in keeping our word. If a master had made a promise to a servant, if he had said, I'm going to give you so much for this job, they ought to give them so much for a job, knowing that there's nothing the servant can do about it. Remember that parable that Jesus told about a master? He had a vineyard. It needed some harvesting of the grapes. And so he went early in the day and he, he found some guys just loitering around who needed work. He says, hey, come work for me. I'll, I'll give you a, a fair day's wage. And they're like, right on. Sounds good. It's exactly what I need. So he started working and, you know, around 10 o'clock, 11 in the morning, he, he made the rounds again, saw some other guys. They were little late sleepers. You know, they were... Uh, there and he says hey why don't you guys come and work for me whatever is right I'll give you okay that sounds fair and then there was a point where so several times during the day this happens he's, he's just getting more and more workers for his vineyard until it's the last hour of the day and who knows what those guys were up to throughout the day maybe maybe they were working two jobs I don't know but they were in the work they were there and he says hey why are you why are you guys just hanging around hey no one's hired us Come work for me, I'll give you what's right. It turned out he started paying those who worked the least amount of time first, and he started giving them a denarius, which was a fair day's wage. And so the guys who worked all day, they're looking at this and they're saying, wow, those guys only worked an hour. They're getting a, a whole denarius. We'll probably do them better than that. But then when it came to them, they got what they had agreed to receive, and they were a bit bitter about it. They're like, what? this isn't right. So they murmured and grumbled. Hey, those guys only worked for a little bit of time, but we worked all day. I mean, look at us. We're ruined. We're getting the same that they're getting. And he says, friend, you know, didn't you agree to receiving a denarius? Why do you look at me evilly? Because I'm generous with my things. Can't I give people what I want to give them? 
He gave them what was right. God keeps his word with us. Masters ought to keep agreements made with their workers because we're doing it as unto him. Verse 2, it's applicable for all followers of Jesus. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in us with thanksgiving. The word continue is translated in other, Bible, in, in places, other places of the Bible. Continue instant, continue steadfastly, attend continually, and give oneself continually. So it's something to be doing all the time that we would be praying earnestly. And see those words too, earnestly with vigilance and thanksgiving. So he tells us not just to pray, but how to pray. What ought to mark our prayers? To be vigilant is to be watchful and alert. Jesus said, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. We often close our eyes when we pray to keep out distractions or to help us focus, but it's okay to pray with your eyes open too, to be watchful. Remember Nehemiah, when they were building the wall, they prayed but they were watchful about their enemies coming. They, they knew they were vulnerable, and so they kept their eyes open. They trusted God. They prayed, but they were also watchful, and that should mark us. Nehemiah 4.9, he says, Nevertheless, we made our prayer to God, and because of them we set a watch against them day and night. We can watch for attacks, but also being watchful for how God has answered prayer, how God is working in our lives, how he is answering prayer. And our prayer should be seasoned with thanksgiving, giving thanks to him that he hears us and will answer and that he knows what we need even before we ask him. When we have those prayers seasoned with thanksgiving, it puts our hearts in a fitting posture before God who protects us, provides for us, and is faithful. One of the lines that I really like is when the disciples were in the Garden of Gethsemane and they were really tired. Jesus starts praying and he, he is focused. He, he knows that he's about to be betrayed and arrested and crucified. And he prays and he goes, you know, it's just a 15, 20 minutes and finds the disciples all just conked out. They just had the Passover meal. They're feeling a bit drowsy. And he says, guys, couldn't you watch? Couldn't you pray with me for an hour? And it's like, no. They couldn't. And it is hard in this body of flesh to focus on anything spiritual for an hour even. But the Lord will help us. And I encourage you not to relegate times of prayer to the most convenient times or times where you can't do anything else. I would encourage you to find times of prayer that are regular. You have a regular time of prayer like we see... Uh, In Babylon, Daniel prayed three times a day. He's not even in Israel anymore, but he's still praying three times a day. I find I go on a holiday and my whole rhythm is kind of thrown out of sync. And, and times of prayer and reading and study, they can be lost, missed. The disciples are seen going in the hour of prayer in the morning. It was typical when the temple was there to go in the morning and the evening for prayer. Orthodox Jews, to this day, they observe morning and evening prayers. Have you ever had someone nod off during a face-to-face -face conversation, but I think more commonly over the phone? Like you're talking, and you've been talking for a while, and, and then you say something, and it's kind of quiet. 
and you're like, are you still there? And like, oh, oh, sorry about that. I just kind of you know, drifted off a while. <laughs> just and then when the snoring comes through, you're like, you know what? This is over. See ya. I'll, I'll talk to you tomorrow or we'll let this go. And, and we can have those sleepy prayers with God. You know, when someone's snoring in your ear, you're like, I think it's perfectly biblical and awesome to pray in bed. I think that's great. But how many prayers are never ended because you kind of drifted off mid-sentence? Probably not your most focused, watchful time. Pray in bed, yes, but don't have that be your main, only time of prayer. Give them some quality time where you're actually awake and alert. David wrote in Psalm 55, 16, 17, As for me, I will call upon God, and the Lord shall save me. Evening and morning and at noon I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. We're to go into our room. We're, we're not to pray to be seen by men, to be acknowledged by them. But God who sees in secret will reward openly. He will hear your prayers. On the subject of prayer, Paul requests the Colossians include him. He says, hey, continue earnestly in prayer. And while you're praying, pray for me. Pray for those with me that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I also am in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Paul's writing this letter while he's in chains. He is a prisoner in Rome. If many of us, or I put myself in his shoes, if I had been wrongly incarcerated, falsely accused, imprisoned, what would I be asking for? Get me out of here. This is an unjust situation. Hey, talk to the governor. Make sure that you put in a good word and fill, you know, put in the paperwork and get the solicitors moving. And... But he doesn't even ask for a pardon. He doesn't even ask that they pray for God to miraculously release him. He asks for God to open a door for the word of God, an opportunity to share Christ, right where he is. I mean, God knew he was in prison falsely accused. He knew that uh, he could be released in a moment. Remember Peter. They had been praying, praying for Peter's release. And an angel came and led Peter out of the prison. Paul had been in prison. And this is, this is really awesome. Paul had been in prison. He had been beaten he was in the stocks. He and Silas are praising God. And suddenly, the doors swing open. There's this massive earthquake. All the chains fall off. And the, the uh, jailer comes in and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They weren't even praying for that. God did that. He knew what he was doing. When we face difficult situations and trying times, Instead of pinning our hopes on escape from a tough season, with thanksgiving, we're free to pray, God, open a door for me right here, even with chains on my wrists and on my feet. Let me serve you here. Give me a chance to serve you. Open a door. He wanted to be an effective witness for the sake of Christ. I love that he didn't even see himself as a Roman prisoner it was like to him, Jesus was his jailer. He's a prisoner of Jesus Christ because he knew God had all power to either keep him in prison 
or to release him from prison. So to sum up, our relationship with God, it should greatly impact our life, our perspective, the way that we do our roles in family, at work, at home, the way we pray. Since Jesus is our life, we do all things as unto him, knowing from him we will receive the reward of the inheritance that he has promised. So instead of working so hard to change the circumstances or to improve our standing or to teach others a lesson, how about doing the one thing that God's called you to do? It's like it's just one thing. And we need him to do that one thing, don't we? With thanksgiving, trusting, and obeying him. I pray that the Lord would open the door of our minds and hearts to receive this. That when you feel like a slave and you feel like you are being oppressed and downtrodden, that, is, that our perspective would change to see God as the awesome deliverer and savior that he is. The father whom we serve as his children, continuing earnestly in prayer, asking that God would open a door so he could be made manifest through our lives. May there be an intersection of joyful duty and desire to do the things God's called us to. And the things that you see as chains or restraints, they will not hinder God's work from being accomplished in and through your life. Trust him. Let's pray. Father, I am in awe of your greatness, your glory, and just, Lord, how feeble and foolish my thoughts can be. Thank you that you are able to do all things, that there is nothing difficult for you, and whether we feel like we're in Paul's situation, in this impossible, unjust situation, or a slave, that we can have that open door to let the word of God flow through our lives and impact others for eternity. God, I pray you would put in us such a faith that we would believe you, we would trust and obey you, we would submit unto you, we would love one another, we would pray earnestly, regardless of our sphere, that you would be glorified. Thank you, Lord, for the many doors of opportunity you open, knowing that when there's open doors, there can be adversaries. But no weapon that's fashioned against us will prosper because you are with us. You will help us. Thank you for the example of Jesus as a servant of all, how he submitted to the Father. And may we all do the same for your glory and in your joy. In Jesus' name, amen.